Well, aren't goals that don't produce income just a waste of time? Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hey, I'm excited about getting started in this segment today. Got lots of questions here. Joanna and I have been traveling for a couple weeks, so I've got a little backlog, but we're going to get through as many as we can today. Questions like, aren't goals that don't produce income just a waste of time? About this, Dan, I'm a longtime fan, but I feel like I have a split personality disorder when it comes to my online presence. And somebody says, I'd love some ideas on how to start my business on a shoestring. Well, that's a common question. We'll address that. How do we subtly start to sabotage our work if it doesn't fit us? Well, those are all questions and more. Here's our quotation for today. It comes from T. Harv Ecker, who said, Rich people focus on opportunities. Poor people focus on obstacles. Now, you ought to stew in that for a little bit. It'll identify what you're thinking is now and probably what it's going to lead to. So again, the quotation is rich people focus on opportunities. Poor people focus on obstacles. All right. Now I've got some comments for the lady who said she has no chance in life. Remember that a couple weeks ago, lady in a very, very uh, painful voice said, I have no chance in life. I think it's because of the way I was born. And then also some comments on last week's segments where I shared about a dad who felt he was condemning his his son to a job in life that was not a fit for his passion. So those are things we'll be looking at. Our business partner today is FreshBooks. Now, you know, there's one fascinating thing about the entrepreneur's journey, and that is what you see on the surface is rarely the whole story. I mean, most of us as small business owners have to overcome some kind of serious obstacles to get to where we want to go. Well, one of those obstacles is that feeling of being overwhelmed when it comes to dealing with all the paperwork administration that comes with running your own show. Conquering that feeling is exactly why FreshBooks was created. They make cloud accounting software so easy to use. You won't even remember what it was like to feel overwhelmed by paperwork. You hear me talk about that repeatedly on here. What a help it is to have everything in order. Here we are at the beginning of the year. I'm all ready to file my taxes for the year because I've got all the records perfectly in order. Know every expense category. We know how to, you know, where to put things to get the maximum benefit, maximum deduction from the IRS. Well, you can do the same. When you connect FreshBooks to your bank account, it can automatically create expense accounts based on what you charge to your credit or debit cards. And then beyond the administrative stuff, FreshBooks also can act like kind of your personal administration assistant. I mean, for example, you can see when a client has looked at your invoice after you've sent the email. Hey, just jump in there. FreshBooks is offering that unrestricted 30-day free trial for all my 48 Days listeners. To claim yours, go to FreshBooks dot com slash 48 days and enter 48 days in the how did you hear about us section now i got just a couple things i want to share here in the good news category now we're going to jump right into these meaty meaty questions some follow-up from the last couple weeks podcast and then into some new territory as well 
Now this, so this comes from Brad, who says, Dan, you may not remember, but I attended Coaching Mastery in 2012. God, 2012, that was seven years ago. And yes, I do remember Brad. I remember you well. Brad says, at the time I was a lawyer making over $100,000 a year, but with a misery index of 10 plus, I thought I missed my calling and enrolled in the Coaching Mastery Weekend in hopes of a change. Being a coach was not what I needed, but be okay. So he says, being a coach was not what I needed, but what I did need was a sense of hope, camaraderie, and practical tools that came from the Coaching Mastery program. I got laser focused, started a side lawn business to help me escape the law. I love being outside so much, I identified it as a passion. In working through the 48 day book, once again, I identified a great dream job. Now I'm a flight instructor and director of commercial aviation at a community college. I do yard work as a side hustle. I'm still a lawyer, but I've been able to escape from the practice of it. What a way to live. Coaching mastery was a life changer in unexpected ways. Thanks, Dan. Well, thanks for your note, Brad. I love hearing how you figured that out. Moved into a new, I, I even remember talking to you about your passion for aviation. Well, what a cool thing. Now you're a flight instructor, director of commercial aviation at a community college. Just one more story about a proper effective, productive, and profitable move in career, even though it seems like a big major move. I love to hear those stories. Now, a couple weeks ago, I played the little clip of a very painful voice from a lady saying, you know, I have no chance in life. I think it was because of the way we were born. Well, I got a lot of response to that. I want to share just a couple just real quickly here. Jean says the woman who made that statement sounds as though she's very uh, she's very battle-scarred and defeated. The tone of her voice tells of exhaustion. She needs a long vacation from whatever obligations or responsibilities she's taken on before she's able to recoup and regain a sense of equilibrium. To a small extent, her statement, maybe it's the way we were born, has some validity. Everyone is born into a set of circumstances over which they have no control. And everyone is born with a skill set personality and genetic makeup that is unduplicated. Each of these factors create both opportunities and limitations. Success then needs to be defined on an individual level based on the contents of the basket the individual has. Not everyone can become a pro golfer or a marathon runner, no matter how much they practice, diet, or train. Not everyone will understand the basics of chemistry or physics, but everyone can be good at something. Well, you know, and, and Jean goes on, very, very thoughtful response, which I'll forward on to this lady. Um, and I appreciate that. I appreciate those of you, you know, who took the time to think through, empathize with this poor lady and made comments. Also, I had another comment here. My response to the lady who believes she has no chance in life is this. Situations and circumstances shape the way we view our world. People and values also influence our ideas about ourselves. If this woman truly believes there is no chance, it's because she has not been encouraged or shown there is hope and a future for her. Family has a lot to do with the way we carry ourselves and what we believe about who we are as a person. If you hear that you're worthless and nothing, you will believe that. This lady needs to receive the grace of God and find her meaning and purpose in him, the creator. Only Jesus can give us hope and a future. My prayer for her is to be surrounded by people who believe in her and her worth to this life. Well, yeah, you, you integrated 
a couple of different things that are really critical. And I love the way that you frame that, you know, your prayer for her is to be surrounded by people who believe in her and her worth to this life. Um, the, the part that you've got in there, you know, this lady needs to receive the grace of God and find her meaning and purpose in him. The creator, only Jesus can give us hope in a future. You know, I'm, we have to be careful about using that with people. Yes, that is certainly valid. But what does that mean to somebody who's really in pain? I mean, when we go back to 1 John 3.18, it talks about, you know, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And James, there's the one that I refer to often, you know, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? And I think sometimes we're too quick to tell people that their, you know, hope is in Jesus or they just need to find peace in God. You know, what does that mean to somebody who's hungry or to somebody who's living in an abusive relationship or somebody who doesn't have a place to sleep tonight? You know, just just telling them that I, I think can be an empty kind of excuse for not doing anything. I think we need to be really, really careful about even saying to somebody, I'm praying for you. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, I, I remember one time when um, our children were small, uh, Jared, our second son, was in his bedroom uh, down the hall from mom and dad, where our bedroom was. And it was a stormy night. And um, I remember him, he was probably three years old or so. And he, you know, called out and um, I went in there and said, you know, Jared, what's wrong? You know, he says, well, I'm scared. You know, it's storming. I said, well, you know, Jesus is right here with you. And he said, I want somebody with skin on. Oh, my gosh. I mean, what? How are you going to respond to that? I mean, I thought, what an appropriate response. I want somebody with skin on. I think when, when people tell us about the pain that they're suffering, they want somebody with skin on. You know, we can be that skin that shows the love of God. Certainly we can do that. But, you know, we need to take action, do more than just say, hey, I'm going to pray for you. Sometimes that's just an easy way to say, hey, I'm tired of hearing about it. You know, let me alone so I can go on with my own life. Well, thanks for your responses to that. Yeah, that, that was a very painful message from that uh, young lady who said that she felt she had no chance in life. Well, last week I shared this story it just had one theme, shared the story from the dad who felt like he had condemned his son to a steady job. You know, remember that? Son was interested in writing, and this dad and mom really felt like they needed to encourage their son to do something where he would be responsible to keep food in the table and a roof over his head, and they didn't think that writing would do that, and yet there was this struggle, the the pain of thinking that they may encourage him to get a job that he didn't enjoy, much like the dad had done. You know, how do we do that? We talked last week at length about that. If you haven't listened to that, you can go back and listen to that. You know, what do you do when your dream, you know, doesn't provide enough income to, to pay the bills? What do you do with that? Well, I got a response from the dad after he having listened to the podcast. I want to share that. And then there's a couple other responses. I mean, a lot of people identified with that. Wow. And thus the kind of in intro to our podcast today, you know, aren't goals that don't produce income just a waste of time. So we'll look at that. But the dad responded, Dan, thanks for answering my letter and especially the follow-ups. I can't express how much this has helped me. 
Uh, when I wrote that email, I really thought it would just go into the digital abyss. It, you know, it, one of the things that I I want to encourage the dad, the dad's writing is astounding. The dad's writing is so compelling, so clear, and so articulate, so eloquent in so many ways. God, I want to encourage the dad to look at writing as well. Anyway, he says, when I wrote that email, I thought it would just go into the digital abyss. The podcast was so moving. I had tears in my eyes just about the whole time. I'll listen to it over and over again. I feel so much better about our son's future journey. We talked with him about not giving up on his passion, but still maintaining a living. He completely understands and agrees. I think the one statement that hit me the hardest was... Uh, when you, Dan, said not to make your art solely responsible for your income, that it wasn't fair to your art and may eventually kill it. That would put a lot of pressure on his writing. His mom and I are in agreement that we'd support him as long as he was working, whether that be full-time writing, part-time working, or working full-time, part-time writing. Last night, we visited our local community college. It offers career pathways, classes that he can take while he's still in high school. Uh, Sean is also very good at math. So he was really drawn to the business administration, business accounting. He will also be able to take classes toward an associate's and arts degree, which could give him his first two years of college credits. However, I don't see him going to a four-year institution unless he decides he wants to teach English or literature. We have friends that he's been working for that absolutely love him, and I can see him moving around in their small business after his business studies and continue to pursue his writing. Thank you so much. You've encouraged me, put my mind at ease. And he says he'd really like to send me a copy of his son's book. Well, I'd be delighted to receive that. Again, love the fact to speak into this issue. And it obviously touched a whole lot of people like this. Here's a note from Ben who says, thanks so much for for the handwritten card, an extra copy you enclosed with my order. Let the river run. Uh, We've got a, a couple hundred of those left. And a lot of you have heard me talk about that. If you're in the Eagles community, you received that as part of that Christmas package we sent out to everybody. So that prompted orders for some more, which is a tip for you who are authors that, uh, that, that that's the way it works. You know, give away a thousand copies of your book and you'll get orders for a whole lot more. If it really does touch people, it'll prime the pump in that way. I've been wanting to ask you a question, Ben continues, for a little while and figured this was a good time as any. What do you do when reaching your goals doesn't bring any financial reward? I'm in the field of music education. Some goals I have for the next five years include presenting at my state or perhaps national association conference, taking my students to perform in some of the great concert halls in America, planning a European summer tour for my top musicians, having my first alumni come back and serve as an intern with me. I could go on. All of these goals are professionally rewarding and give students some amazing opportunities. Unfortunately, not one of them would advance my own income. It would just be a lot of attaboys, and we appreciate you, which is nice to hear, but doesn't pay the bills. So what do you do when achieving excellence in your particular field doesn't result in financial gain? With only so many hours in a day to devote to projects, it could possibly produce revenue, such as things you often mention, ebooks, courses, etc., is spending time on these non-income producing goals a waste? Is it a sign that my goals are too small or that I'm in a dead-end field? Once again, thank you for the extra book to pass along and the kind card. It made my day to see a note from you. Hope I have a chance to shake your hand one day. Ben from Florida. Well, I mean, what, what you're talking about, you know, we talk about that three-legged stool over and over and over again, the combination of passion, talent, and income. There has to be activity in all three areas. 
If there are only two, the stool is going to fall over. So no matter what it is, if there's just passion and talent, you have a hobby, no money. If you have talent and income, but no passion, you'll burn out. It's not going to work. If you have passion and income, but no talent, it's not going to last very long. There has to be all three. So here's where it comes to just identifying how much time can you justify in that application of your passion and talent if it's not producing income. Now, is it just a waste of time? No, not at all. Not at all. There are a lot of things that you should have as goals that are not going to produce income at all. I mean, if you want to get in better shape physically, I mean, that's not necessarily going to be a direct direction that is going to give you immediately more income. Now, it may indirectly because your vitality, your energy is going to be higher, your creativity and all that. But, you know, we wouldn't look at that as a way to make money, but yes, it's a worthy goal. If you want to increase your marriage relationship or the relationship with your children, be they small or grown. I mean, that's a very worthy goal, but it doesn't really relate directly to income. So there's lots of things that are worthy goals that are not directly related to income. So we come back to this issue where you're really talking about what is it that you do that does produce enough income to take care of your family needs and provide abundance from which you can share with others. Maybe we want more than just providing basic needs. There's joy in being able to share, and that comes from having abundance. So what are you going to do to do that? If you're spending all your time in ways that do engage your passion and talent, but just produce a trickle of income, then you have to look at how can you pare that down? You know, How can you change the amount of time you're spending? Maybe it only justifies using 15 hours a week of your time, and that you do need to do something in the majority of your time that produces significant income. Now, there are a lot of examples where you can leverage that passion in ways that would produce income. I mean, me as a writer, you know, am I going to spend all my time writing? No, I don't think I can generate significant income just from writing, even if I'm continually writing new books that go on and do pretty well. It's still not going to give me enough leverage there. So I do a lot of other things, but they're all related to the message in my writing. Now, I could also do things that aren't as directly related. Most of you who listen know that I am kind of a car nut. Could I do things related to cars? Could I, you know, have a little car lot where I had 30 cars there and was selling, you know, exotic cars or old muscle cars? Yeah, absolutely. I could do that in a heartbeat and produce money doing that. Could I do things in real estate? Sure. I enjoy that a lot. Could I, like Brad, in our success story here today, you know, have a little side Yard care business. Yeah, I love that. I love the things that can be done with little landscaping ideas and helping people have beautiful yards. So there are a lot of other things that I could do if I were looking for ways to create income more directly than just from writing. Now, I've been writing for a long time, so I've found those things where I can kind of move the needle with that, and certainly I enjoy that. But if I were in a pinch in a jam, I wouldn't do just things related to writing. I'd branch out into other things so that I could provide for my family. And I've done that over the years. I mean, when I was in graduate school, you know, getting advanced degrees, I didn't just keep writing and thinking that someday that's going to turn in. No, I had a wife and small children. So I painted, I painted houses. 
I'm talking about, you know, not artistic painting. I'm talking about, you know, using a brush and roller and painting apartments and houses inside and out. That's what I did while I was in school because it was immediate income. It's still something I enjoy doing. I love seeing the, the radical transformation that takes place when you paint like that. But I would caulk windows and replace screen doors and all that. Those are the kind of things that I did to create income. I wasn't trying to just push my writing, even though I knew I enjoyed that. You know, and then another time when I was back at for another degree, I um, just committed to buying and selling enough cars every month so that I could provide a base income. I think I established $4,000 a month as kind of the necessary income. And so I just made sure that I bought and sold enough cars to do that. We were in a college town, Bowling Green, Kentucky, and it was easy to, to know what kind of cars were marketable to the students. So I would just buy those in a lot of different places, make sure they're okay mechanically, you know, dress them up uh, cosmetically on the outside and put them in the front yard and sell them. And I did that for, you know, the couple years where I was getting yet another graduate degree. So, yeah, if it, if your passion isn't profitable, absolutely. I'm quick to change, to go in a different direction if my passion isn't profitable. So, you know, those of you who are listening where you have got this ongoing question about this. Don't think that I think the only thing worthwhile doing is just pursue your passion. No, I take very seriously the responsibility as a husband and daddy to provide. And if that means doing something that's unrelated, going to Home Depot and getting a job or whatever it happens to be, you know, right, right now we've got construction guys in the, down in the front of your yard here out in front of the sanctuary. They're putting in a new water line. Man, they're digging a ditch and laying water line. Golly, those guys make great money. And it's just physical work. No shame in that at all. You could go hit about six different sites like that in a day and you can be guaranteed you're going to be offered a job because unemployment is so low. Uh, companies are looking for people just willing to get out here and be, be willing to work. Well, here's another one. I'll, I'll give you a couple more that were kind of in that same vein based on last week's podcast. What if your dream isn't paying the bills? Matt says, Dan, I'm 38 years old, fairly new to the Eagles community. But I was wondering, is it possible that some people's skills and aptitudes are more predisposed to be less profitable than others? For example, if someone really loves sales and happens to really love expensive Italian sports cars, the answer might be a little more obvious than someone whose true passion is writing novels. Again, we're back to that writing thing. Of course, there are different types of writers. Obviously, you can write self-help books that are geared toward helping people improve their lives in some way and then create a course. But what if your real passion is just simply writing novels? Great hobby, but don't quit your day job, right? Does that mean you probably have to make money some other way and then have a much smaller chance to truly make money in your real passion? Well, you know, last week I talked about golly, several different people, famous in history for being writers, Nobel Peace, Peace writers or Peace winners and so on, who had real jobs. I mean, who had worked at a bank? You know, one guy worked at a post office for 33 years. I mean, there are people who had real jobs because they didn't want to put that unrealistic pressure on their writing to produce their only income. Um, okay, Mike continues. My main passion has always been creating and performing music. I've been wrestling with the concept of right mindset, right idea, right network. I consider myself to generally be a positive person despite my less than ideal career path to date. I've always seemed to struggle to find an idea that I'm both passionate about and generates enough income to provide for my family. After a season of right, working long hours to provide for my, provide, 
<laughs> I'm sorry. I got to go back here. After a season of working long hours to provide for my wife who homeschools and our five young kids, I feel like I'm just now trying to play catch up on building the network. Sometimes I feel at odds with myself because my passion doesn't seem to line up with the right idea that might generate income. That's why I think I've always struggled with the objective section on my resume. My resume has gone in so many random directions. It seems like at every job I've held professionally, if I'm honest with myself, I'm just watching the clock for the end of the day so I can get back into my studio. I'm aware that my network is very weak. I've always had hope that there's a different angle that people with experience could help illuminate for me, or maybe I just need to change my perspective. Either way, I don't think I really know where to start, and that's why I'm reaching out. Well, you do need to be focused, Mike, in your resume. I mean, you're, you need to be clear. You know, your objective is very, very broad. It would apply to anybody who lives on the face of the earth. And you got to get past that so people will know what kind of unique value you bring to the table. But this thing about, you know, wanting to create and perform music, and yet it doesn't produce the income. I mean, just what I commented on the previous question here, there's no shame in doing something that seems to be not related to that. Now, however, there's a caveat there. That doesn't mean to just turn your brain off, turn your passion off and go do something totally unrelated to that. There ought to be things that are related. When I talk about doing things in real estate or old cars or landscaping, those are real interests that I have. Those are not just random things that I pulled out of the air. Those are things that I also am very, very interested in and really intrigued about. I have a lot of passion about those. There ought to be those things for any of you. And certainly, you know, Mike, you ought to be able to identify some other things that would line up more with ways to actually generate income. Well, I want to move on. These go on and on. Ramon says, Dan, I want to be a writer, speaker, and coach. The problem is most of my experience is in ministry Christian publishing. Should I stick with this area, go toward a more financially viable area? Ministry and leadership are my passions and where the writing easily flows but I don't know if those areas will be enough to generate income. Well, don't assume they are not in advance. When you talk about ministry and leadership, um, those just happen to also be the passions of a guy named John Maxwell. I'm sure you've heard of him. John is a bazillionaire because of his passion for ministry and leadership. Um, I just, just did a review of his brand new book, Leadership. I mean, he cranks out a book about every six months, you know, he and his team, and has sold millions and millions of copies of his book, but they also, also do major events. They have the Maxwell Leadership Center just on the north side of Atlanta. It's a beautiful, beautiful, but I mean, a multi, multi-million dollar facility where they, um, as a matter of fact, I just checked into have a, having a couple events there. They have very reasonable day rates, as my friend J- Kent Julian has done with his Speak It Forward event. He has it there at the Maxwell Leadership Center. So, you know, but there are so many things that John Maxwell has done with those things. So don't assume that it can't generate money and significant money, lots of it. You just have to be creative about how you're going to do that. But at the same time, if you can't figure out a way to have that generate income, then yeah, move in a different area, move a little laterally 
into one of your other passion areas and find a way, find something you can do. It's not, you know, if I go to work selling Italian sports cars, as somebody just implied here a little bit ago, I mean, that's, that's not something to be embarrassed about. My gosh, I wouldn't love doing it, selling Ferraris or, you know, Maseratis or Lamborghinis or any of the, the exotic imports. Cal, I hadn't loved doing that. And I mean, there are guys, you, you could do that and make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year if you're good in doing that. Yeah, there's no shame in doing that. You know, do that and then come home and spend your discretionary time writing or creating and producing music. Some of the things that you're talking about here. Now, this comes from uh, Jeff who says, I purchased 48 Days um, to the Work You Love. No more Mondays, several years ago, great books. About nine years ago, I was laid off from my job of 11 years at a musical products design manufacturer where I was a quality auditor, assembler, production line worker. Since then, I've worked a few miscellaneous temp jobs that didn't last long. Throughout that time, I've continued to lead worship for my church, other churches who need guest worship leaders to fill in for them from time to time, also uh, for help groups such as Celebrate Recovery. These are all paid positions or gigs. This helps a bit financially to cover a bill or two, but that's all. I'm in need of a regular and more consistent work situation. My absolute joy and passion is music, worship leading, songwriting, singing. I'm willing to open and look into other types of jobs or work as well. I've been looking for a job to help provide better for my family. In the last few years, I've come to a place where I feel stuck or almost lost at times and just can't seem to find a job no matter how much I search. I'm turning 59 in April and I've also been experiencing age discrimination. I could seriously use some advice and ideas on how to get unstuck, back to work, and back on track. Thanks in advance for any help you might be able to offer me. Okay, Jeff. Wow, here's, here's the deal. The longer the time passes without productive work, and nine years is a horrendous amount of time. I mean, there's all kinds of mind games that have had to have gone on in a period of time to have that much time pass and just have a few temp jobs here and there or these little positions, you know, that pay a few hundred bucks here and there. I mean, the more time passes without productive work, the more you're likely to experience a diminishing of self-confidence. So it becomes a vicious cycle. You have to have self-confidence to get out and get a position, but you have to have a position to have that self-confidence. You know, not having a profitable position kills your self-confidence, just that vicious cycle. So you have to control your thinking first, your mindset, and then take action immediately to change your circumstances. Boy, I would give yourself a really short period of time to have a job. When you say you're turning 59 in April and have been experiencing age discrimination, unemployment is at 3.1% nationally, depending on where you live. I mean, here in Franklin, it's less than 2%. Franklin, Tennessee, less than 2%. I mean, that's a terrible position for companies to have unemployment so low. That means that they are scrambling just to have people show up. I mean, you go to any restaurant, there are sections where they aren't seating people because they don't have enough servers to do that. I mean, you go to other places and they have reduced hours because they don't have enough workers to cover. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, there are places you can, my my grandson just moved here, 23 years old, and he he was amazed in driving around 
I mean, every business has signs out. We're hiring. I mean, Home Depot has a permanent sign out there. If you're 16 years old and breathe and can put one foot in front of the other one, we want to talk to you. It almost implies that. So they're, they're really... Golly, is not much excuse for not having a job. Now, it may not be your dream job, but you need something to break this cycle. You need something to give you that sense of satisfaction that comes from getting a paycheck and feeling like you put in your time and did something profitable, and now you got paid for that. If, if it's in, and and really, you know, please don't. The thinking that you're experiencing age discrimination is another mindset. There are companies who prefer people who are 59 years old because they're more reliable. They have a stronger work ethic, more responsibility. They can put them into leadership positions, not worry about it. I mean, see that as an advantage. It's, it's the old Henry Ford thing. Whether you think you can or think you can't either way, you're right. If you think that you're experiencing age discrimination, you're going to have reason to believe that every day you go out. If you see that as an advantage, you're going to experience that as an advantage every day that you go out. So get through that, get some real clear action steps, get out there and get a job in the next three days. Wow. Well, let me take just a quick breather here as I kind of go move into the next question, next set of questions here that we're going to address. You are listening to Real Life Questions, obviously here. Um, These are 48 Days of Listeners, just like you, people just like you and me who are struggling with the issues. If you got a question you want us to address here, I'd be delighted to review that and look at it for inclusion in an upcoming segment of the podcast. Just shoot that in to askdan at 48days.com. You can also go to any section on the 48days.com website and you'll see a little microphone there. It's called SpeakPipe. You can just click on the microphone, just start talking. Pretty much any computer or certainly your iPhone at this point has the capability of just clicking on that that microphone and start talking. And it sends me a little brief audio message that I can include, like I did the lady who said that she has no chance because of the way she was born. I mean, it's a little audio message, so you can go there and do that as well. But just shoot it in. The easiest thing for most people is to just shoot it in to askdan at 48days.com. Now, this comes from Jay, who says he's struggling to reach hiring authorities during career transition from overseas. Good morning, Dan. Thanks for your ministry. I'm a member of 48 Days Eagles. Follow your podcast. Read 48 Days to the work you love. I'm transitioning this summer from the Air Force after 24 amazing years and currently living in Germany. I'm excited about my transition. Feel very confident. Thanks to your ministry. How do I? You know, it's interesting. I just just thought of this. You know, it's interesting how many people refer to what I do as my ministry. And yet people say, I'm interested in ministry, but I know I can't make any money doing that. Now, I just addressed that in a previous question here. I mean, isn't it ironic how that shows up? People say, well, gee, I'd love to be in ministry, but I can't make any money doing that. And then they immediately look at what I'm doing. Dan Miller, 48 Days, thanks for your ministry. I love the way that people see it as such. But I think it's also pretty obvious that um, I do okay financially in this ministry thing that I've got going on here. I don't share details, and you'll never see that from me. But uh, be confident. You know, if I go to Taco Bell, it's because I choose to go there, not because I only have three bucks in my pocket. 
Well, enough said. But anyway, I just, I love the way that people frame that. I'll go back to Jay's question without going down that rabbit hole anymore. Jay says, how do I reach the hiring authorities and avoid HR at companies where I do not know anyone? Living in Germany makes it slightly more challenging to drop by and visit a company. And I'm struggling to find direct email addresses. I've had some few, some fortune through LinkedIn but still limited. I have a list of companies I'm targeting, but I'm finding it hard to break through the HR wall, even at one company that only has 30 employees. I have zero doubt I'll get there, but would appreciate your wisdom. Any suggestions? Yeah, got a couple, a couple suggestions for you, Jay. And you have already had a friend, as you know, send me your resume. So I've had the privilege of uh, looking at your resume. I want you to be more clear about what you're looking for. You describe that you're a team player, you know, and you've had experience in, you know, leading groups, but it's pretty unclear what you would be a candidate for. Now, here's the other thing that, well, I got a couple things. I'm going to come back to that. I want to address first, you know, how do you break through the HR wall, even if the company only has 30 employees with a company with 30 employees, it be surprising that they even have a full-time HR director. Usually we see companies at about 50 or 60 employees where they can justify having a, a full-time human resource director. If ever in doubt though, and you're, you can, you're right, you know, going to the HR director is not always the most advantageous when you're looking for a position. If a company has 200 employees, yeah, don't go to the HR director, go to the person who is likely to make a decision about filling a position in their department. So if that's sales or office administration, customer service, manufacturing, whatever it is, find the person who's in charge of that department and go right to them. I mean, even major companies like Vanderbilt University is the biggest employer in uh, Nashville here. I mean, they have, golly, I think like 14,000 employees. If you just apply to the HR department there, it's going to go, your resume is going to go through a screening process where they look electronically for keywords in your resume. And if it doesn't have those, it never goes on. But if you go directly to somebody who's in a department who has three positions they need to fill, they can bypass what HR would have done and put you on the fast track to get an interview and an offer for a position. So yeah, look for those people who have the ability to make a decision, not just somebody who's a paper pusher and filing those, all those resumes that are coming in. If ever in doubt, go high. That means if you are looking at a company of 50 employees and they have an HR director, but you're really not sure about this, go to the CEO. I mean, that's a small enough company where the CEO is still going to see who's coming through, who has the credentials that they're looking for, who's a great candidate, but in doing so and going to the, don't just say I'm a great team player. You know, I don't love to be part of your team. Say, these are my skills and this is exactly what I bring to the table. Now, Jay, also just another quick piece of advice. I know that you love and are very proud of those 24 amazing years in the U S air force be careful about assuming that everybody else is going to be as thrilled about what you've done in the Air Force. A lot of people are going to see those skills as having very little relevance to what they're doing. So when you're fine fighter pilots and you're leading soldiers, you know, that sounds admirable and it certainly is. But be realistic about how that translates into marketable skills for a company and what you can do there. They aren't going to just be enamored 
with the fact that you did those things and think, oh, wow, we'll figure out something for this guy. No, you still have to be very concrete about telling them what it is that you can do for them. All right, let me go on here. A couple more. Bill says, Dan, it's been quite a while since we met at the last Coaching with Excellence event you had at the Sanctuary. Um, I wanted to let you know that I got let go of my dream job of being an NCAA Division I sportscaster last fall after doing it for five years. My wife and I have relocated back to Tennessee from North Carolina. I'm in the process of launching the Dream Factory, which is ideal for high school and college students, not to mention recent graduates struggling to figure out what they want to do with their lives. I have several products and target audiences capitalizing on the more than one income stream model you talked about based on a coaching philosophy I've been developing for about nine years. Now, Bill goes on here. He's targeting high schools and colleges as a speaker where he can speak to. I'm also targeting civic organizations as places where I can speak and also offer workshops for parents and their teenagers when they can both go through a course together and be prepared for that school to work transition. Three, I hope to be launching soon a program that targets parents of kids in high school up to 25 on the issue of how to avoid the situation where the child is done with school but still living at home, lying on the couch and not doing anything to become self-sufficient. Four, I'm obviously offering coaching services and starting to base that off the manual. We got it. Coaching with excellence. It's proving to be a little more, more difficult than I thought simply because I'm in a new area of the country and don't have many connections here except family, as you know. Um, hmm. as you know, family isn't all that helpful when they don't see you as, as doing as the thing you want to be. Finally, the business is primarily aligned to the idea of helping students use their education to achieve their career goals. So I was asked to try to put my course in the format of a high school curriculum. I just finished shooting the video that last month and hope to have it done by the end of the spring. So he goes on with these. Now, this sounds like a great way that you are building multiple streams of income. Now, none of the things that you're talking about, Bill, as you are experiencing, I'm sure, are quick and easy ways to generate income. They're all things that require some nurturing. When you talk about writing, when you talk about, you know, following your passion and doing the things, you know, creating courses, those are all things that take a significant amount of time to get up and running. I was just um, listening to Seth Godin, this morning, you know, Seth being a brilliant marketer has written a lot of books on that. He says, you need to be promoting and building credibility for three years before your book comes out. I mean, just as that, as an example, you talk about the need to build your network. Yeah, you're right on, right on track with that. You really do need to be doing that. So many people these days are, you know, writing their book in solitude, and then they're going to spring it on the world and the world has never heard of them before. That's really, really tough. Yeah, you need to be building your network and credibility three years before your book comes out. You know, Michael Hyatt has a brand new book coming out. I just got a note from him about that free to focus book. Well, he's been building his audience for years. You know, he has hundreds of thousands of people who follow him. Yeah, that's pretty easy to launch a book. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. He's, he wouldn't say it's easy. But certainly having the credibility in a big audience like that, that really uh, changes things dramatically. That's what you need to be doing. If you've got a book that you want to come out or a course, be working on your connections, your network, your credibility through 
everything you can imagine, you know, blogging, commenting on other people's blogs, being in, in community like the 48 Days Eagles, where people get to know you and know that you're an expert in a particular area. So then when you have your book come out, yeah, you, you come into that with a significant amount of credibility. That sounds like you're right on track, Bill. I commend you on doing the things that you've done to um, get this multiple streams of income up and running. Well, this comes from Karen. It says, Dan, I'm a longtime fan, but help, I have a split personality disorder, it seems, from my online presence. Now that I'm scaling down my full-time cabinet painting business and will only be doing it, doing one-off small pieces and more design work, I've taken a job with a wall and window floor coverings business. I don't know how to proceed. I want to keep the catchy Lula paints and maybe put all my design, small furniture pieces and succulent paintings and decor into that. Do you think that will be a good idea? I'm so confused, Karen. Well, Karen, I looked at your site, the things you've got on Instagram and Pinterest. I love the things you've got there. Now, those really do imply that you're doing the uh, cabinet painting work. And if you don't want to do that anymore, then, then remove some of that stuff. I mean, don't have things out there that lead people into wanting you for things that you no longer want to do. But I don't think it's too scattered or too mixed. I think it's still a nice blend if you have a full-time job that you've taken with a wall and window coverings business to be, you know, a designer, help people come up with new ideas, to have shown as your side hustle that you're still doing those small one-off projects and you've got little art pieces. You can have a lot of things in there. When you talk about getting into things that open the door to crafts or artistic things, you can have a variety of things. It doesn't have to be so narrow that it's just one thing. I think you can easily do that, make that transition and still let people know what those little projects are that you really do enjoy doing. Carol says, Dan, I just start, I just read your starting a business is not complicated article. I'm going to love some ideas on how to start my business on a shoestring. I want to create an educational resource center in Northern Vermont, predominantly focused on homeschoolers. As a homeschooling mom myself, I know how hard and expensive it is to pull materials together. And I've been collecting materials for years. Now I want to start my business and I'm brainstorming the best ways to make these materials available to other families. Ultimately, I'd like to love to, I, I would love to buy some land that families can use for Sports, nature studies, because it can be very hard to access public school sports facilities. Thanks for what you do and all your ideas. Well, um, golly, I want to I want to comment just on a little bit here, Carol, about what you describe when you say you want to start having resources available for homeschoolers, and then you'd love to buy some land. Be very, very careful of having a physical, geographically centered high capital, very expensive part of your business for the audience you describe. I mean, you talk about wanting to address the needs of homeschoolers. They're all over the, the country, all over the world. I mean, my own daughter or granddaughters who are being homeschooled as they travel around the country, but they aren't looking for one place to come every week because they're in different places. And then the same thing in northern Vermont, you know, to have a place like that. Wow, you're going to have a very, very tiny, tiny segment of your audience that's willing to come to a physical place. I'd see that as being a very, very low priority for the business. Now, can you gear up and do things that will address the homeschoolers and an online presence? Oh, my gosh, that's where they live and breathe. 
Absolutely. Determine what it is that makes you stand out. What distinguishes you from all the other resources out there that homeschoolers have? What is it that you can be known for? I mean, I'm known as 48 days in the career planning space because I'm the guy who says you can change your life dramatically in 48 days. Not just when the kids are grown or when you get another degree or when you're out of debt. In 48 days. That's my distinguishing factor. Look for what it is with you that will give you that kind of an edge. Well, I've got a whole lot more. Golly, I love seeing all the questions here, certainly. Um, keep sending those in. Keep shooting those in to askdan at 48days.com. I love the things you give me, the rich fodder you give me for conversations here every week. Remember our quotation from T. Harv Eckert, who um, endorsed one of my books. But he said, rich people focus on opportunities. Poor people focus on obstacles. Well, that's the way it plays out. Focus on opportunities, not the obstacles. Thanks for being part of this community where together we know we can find or create work that is meaningful, fulfilling, and profitable.